All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. So this is uh, kicking off season three. It feels like uh, I think you guys were talking about The Bachelor and Bachelorette. It's like we don't take a break. It's like three weeks and a, a new season starts. So uh, that's kind of fun. Uh, and it's great to see people are just coming in. This is the most highly uh, participated rants ever. So that's great to see so many people interested in this topic. Uh, Glad that we, I guess, opened it up and have more people. It's uh, it's really neat to see. Absolutely. Joe, Joe's going to start off just going over the ground rules because remember, there's two really, really two versions of this. There's a, a live version with the live studio audience, and then it gets uh, turned into a podcast. So after that, it'll be an audio, and Joe will go over all the details about that before we introduce the topic and our guests. Absolutely. Um, so if you are catching this live and you want to ask a question for, for any of us, uh, because this is really driven by the audience and the questions that they ask, uh, you can ask two ways. Uh, the most preferred way is to use the Q&A because a notification comes up for me so I can make sure that all of your questions get attended to. Um, the other option is to put it in the chat and you can send it to the panelists. Um, sometimes things get lost in there. So if you wanna make sure your question gets answered, uh, please use the Q&A option. And you can ask questions anonymously in there too. So if you don't necessarily um, feel comfortable with putting your name on your question, you, you can definitely ask it anonymously so we can address it that way. If you're listening via podcast, well, you're out of luck. Um, try to catch it live sometime if you wanna ask questions. Uh, as all rants are, this one is free. Um, but if you want CEUs for this or any other rants, you can purchase and download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. For those of you who are here live, I'll put that in the chat box for you. Um, just make sure to keep track of the keywords, the opening word and the, and the closing word so you can get your CEU. The opening word for today's podcast is going to be improve, improve, I-M-P-R-O-V-E. Uh, I think that's all of just the logistics. Did I miss anything? No, I think it's just important to remind those people who are just can't catching rants for the first time that a lot of this is just driven by questions. And so this is different than most podcasts where, you know, the leaders, Joe and myself would be giving questions. A lot of the questions and answers and response from our guest is driven by the people that come into this uh, live studio audience. So ask your questions. Um, there's a lot of people here today, more than usual. Uh, almost double the size of what we usually get for live. So that's that's great. And um, if we have to stay longer than an hour, I think both uh, John and Ron said that they were willing to stay in an hour. Joe and I will make the decision of how best to proceed logistically if that happens. And so we're looking forward to this season. We have some uh, pretty cool guests, including today's guest. Uh, Pat Fryman's gonna be coming in a little bit uh, later this year. Uh, Steve Foreman's going to be here a little later this year, Tom Zane, Mary Jane Weiss, uh, Nick Liu, an individual adult uh, diagnosed with autism is going to be here. So we're looking forward to another fun season of rants with uh, Justin and Joe. 
Uh, Joe and I start, decided to start off season three with rants of having uh, Dr. Ron Leaf and Dr. John McCacken come on to address misconceptions about ABA that we see in social media. Uh, Joe and I made this decision after multiple talks as we've really seen an increase in misinformation and disinformation being posted on social media, not just by individuals who identify themselves as autistic, but by certified behavior analysts. Uh, some here today, or for those of you listening on the podcast, may feel that it's okay to put or allow misinformation and disinformation on social media. Some may feel that it's just listening to perspectives. But in many cases, it is just allowing broad overgeneralizations to occur. Some may feel that's ethically okay to do so. But unfortunately, when behavior analysts post misinformation and disinformation, or allow others to post misinformation or disinformation on social media, they're opening the door to potential harm for our consumers, the ones that we are supposed to protect. And so this harm really came to light for me um, this, at this year's conference, uh, the Council for Autism Service Providers, where Dr. Ron Leaf was giving a talk about threats to her field. And unfortunately, too many service providers in the chat box were talking about how they were getting calls from parents who no longer wanted behavioral intervention or to seek behavioral intervention because of the posts they were seeing on social media by behavior analysts. And so when I thought of this, this is tragic to me that the children who are supposed to help are no longer receiving our services because of what they're seeing, some misconceptions in the field. Uh, so we decided immediately uh, to address this. And so Joe and I brought on Ron and John uh, to really talk about this misinformation we're seeing because it can do harm to our clients. It has the potential for harm. So with that, I will let uh, Ron and John just give a brief one minute introduction of themselves so the audience knows who they're listening to and then we can go right to questions. Well, my mic's open, so I'll go first. Um, Ron and I have many similarities in our story because we've been working together in this field for close to 50 years now, um, starting at the Young Autism Project at UCLA in the 1970s. And so having been in this field for as long as we have, we've seen um, waves of interest and, um, and dislike of ABA come and go over the decades. Um, and uh, I guess what we have, we have a lot to say here in terms of our, our view of how we operate as professionals. Um, and uh, we look forward to uh, having this dialogue. I look forward to having this dialogue. Um, to add to what John said, we've been in the field a long time. We've seen a lot of different things happen um, in terms of controversies. Uh, I remember back at UCLA being picketed, um, ABABR, what we did on the project where there were pickets outside, um, getting police to, to take care of the issue, been in conferences where police have been called in. Um, I think part of John's my history is we've worked with many different populations too, which I think is going to probably influence what we have to say. We've worked with from very young children, six month olds to um, adults. 
Um, we've worked with multiple populations, although autism has been our passion and the major focus. We've worked with other populations as well, um, adults with Prader-Willi syndrome and intellectual impairments and, and pretty much everything within developmental disabilities. And we worked across settings. Um, so not only in clinics and homes and schools, but agencies and institutions and pretty much everything. I think that's shaped our perspective. I think the other thing to say is, is both of us with Evar being our mentor, he influenced us in many ways. We learned tremendous amounts from him, what to do and what not to do. Um, and I, I think one thing that made Evar stand out was he didn't stand for the status quo when he was controversial and he spoke out. He thought it was necessary to speak out. He didn't like many things that were going on in the field and he had no shame in talking about it. And I think John and I have sort of inherited that, as you'll see today, we have no problem talking about what we're concerned about. But it comes from absolutely our passion, our caring for children, adolescents, adults, and their families, and the field. And so I think that's what concerns us, the effect it's having throughout. Well, and I appreciate you both being here because I think in addition to everything else you can bring, you have a, a historical perspective that a lot of us that are, are younger in the field or might just be joining the field don't necessarily have. Uh, and I think you don't always get access to that type of a perspective. Uh, so with with that in mind, there's questions rolling in, but maybe to start things off uh, with with that in mind, um, what are some of the biggest things you see wrong with, with what might be occurring or what's being espoused uh, on these various outlets? One of the things that's really different today compared to 20, 30, 40 years ago is social media. And everyone has access to it. Everyone has a voice. And there's no, there's no filtering process going on. And it's also very impersonal. And so I think people are willing to be more outrageous in, in a sort of anonymous kind of way, even though their name might be there, they're not face-to-face -face in interaction with a person. So there's some pretty crazy ideas that are being put out there that um, are taking up just as much space on the page and maybe even more space than the sensible, the sensible ideas. Um, and so I think it makes this particularly challenging for us in an era where we don't have that sort of filtering process that mod the moderator, so to speak, that sort of maintains civility in the discussion. I am, um, I'm pretty new to social media. I came in social media screaming and kicking. I didn't want to be any part of it. Um, and I took pride in not being part of social media. So I, I'm new to Facebook. Um, and the reason I joined Facebook was because I wanted to be able to see my grandchildren, more pictures of my grandchildren and my kids. Um, and it was easier way to follow some sports. And so that was the only reason I vowed I would not respond to anything in social media, be it political or within the field. And I was pretty true to that until we got started getting to the election. And then there were just some things that were said um, about President 45 that I just couldn't stand and I had to respond. And that was my first sort of venture into it. But I quickly left it um, because of all the backlash of what I said. And I thought, okay, I should never do this again. 
um, until October where there was a posting about an article and I just felt I couldn't stand by. And so I, for the first time I entered into social media and posting uh, in October, it was my first really last time and I vow never to do it again, but it greatly concerned me. Um, you know, Justin had been, Joe, you'd been talking about the dam, about social media. I didn't follow it. You'd send me postings. I wouldn't look at them until I, I entered into that. And then I heard John gave a brilliant speech recently about some of these issues about, you know, data and, 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 and looking at research and evaluation that spurred me even further. And so I did a talk, a talk at CAST recently. And I'd like to you know, take this hostage for probably 10 minutes, hopefully no more, and sort of present what I said at CASP. Um, not the whole thing talk, just think about social media. Um, and it talks about my concerns. And I thought a lot about doing this and um, taking a stand. And I'm, I was born to take a stand. And I'll talk about how I was, why I was born to take a stand. But not only Evar, but my parents. And I, I want to sort of present. So I'm going to share my screen. And those on, on um, listening listen on the podcast won't get my screen, although we're trying to figure out how to do that too. But those are watching will get that. So let me share my screen. And let me um, share my, my, what I did at CAS. I think we're breaking new ground. This is the, one of the first podcasts with a PowerPoint presentation. There so. you go. I, I like <laughs> to be a trendsetter. So my, my talk is about threats to ABA and thus families and children. I talked about these five other threats, which I'm not going to talk about now. I, I've talked about them many times before, but my new one was social media and the threat of social media. Um, and so, yes, reduced effectiveness and, and um, uh, conventional ABA and staff competency losing our way in different perspectives are all things that I think are threats. But I think social media is perhaps the biggest threat we now face. And so I went into it a little bit and I, I talked about the personal attacks. Um, and this is one that just, these are the things that really bother me, but not as much as the professional attacks. But I want to start with the personal attacks and they attack my son, they attack Justin. Um, and they, you know, on a site, they talk about him not being the cool kid in school, um, which to me is just cyberbullying, I got to tell you. Um, and it fits the definition of cyberbullying, some of the things that go on. And the interesting thing, these are some people that, that try to talk about being compassionate uh, and the importance of sensitivity and compassion. But yet they say things like that, um, trying to shame him that he wasn't a cool kid. But the act by actually what bothered me and what I found kind of ironic is he was the cool kid in school. Um, if you see this picture behind me, he was on a baseball team that was a nationally ranked, nationally ranked baseball team, and he was the leader of the team. He was the cool kid on the team, and that was the they were the they were the cool kids. So person got it wrong, um, but it's just the personal attack. And then I posted, I made a posting, I'll talk about it for in a few seconds, but I, that was my first posting and it was about the Reekers and Lovas article. And what comes back to me is that I'm a bastard. Um, really, you're gonna say that because of what I post? And then this person, Megan goes on and talks about, you know, how I was defending conversion therapy of what I said and surprise my first posting and why was I why was I endorsing conversion therapy. Um, 
and I was called, you know, this was my post I, that I made about, about the Reekers Lovas article. And just to point out, highlight what I said, and part of it is our history is full of research that would never have been approved by human subject committees today, and that the studies are disturbing by today's standards. Instead of retracting our history, let's learn from it. I never endorsed conversion therapy whatsoever, but that post is there as if I did endorse conversion therapy. And, you know, to me, as I said, some of this is just straight cyberbullying. These are the definitions, some of the definitions of cyberbullying. I was called an old white conservative man, and that hurt. Um, not that I'm old and white, because I'm both of those, but I am not conservative in the slightest. Anything got me upset, and that, that was being called conservative, because I'm incredibly liberal. My dad was actually in the Socialist Party. Um, when I was born, and I became incredibly political active in a really young age. I mean, these are the buttons that I wore proudly, and I actually, actually worked for the Kennedy campaign, the Adley Stevenson campaign, Lyndon Johnson campaign as a seven-year-old um, in the beginning, stuffing envelopes, licking stamps, going with my mom to the vote, voting polls, writing down who hadn't voted. I was devout liberal. Um, I was such a liberal, I aspired to become a politician. I went to UCLA as a political science major. I went to Washington, D.C. for summer seminars um, because I wanted to change the world. Social injustice was absolutely a passion of mine to change um, in everything I did. John and I were part of deinstitutionalization. Um, you know, this was me with some of the clients I, I, I lived with. I am not conservative in the slightest, and conversion therapy is abhorrent to me. But I did talk about not retracting our history. In the same, you know, analogy, I don't think there should be any Confederate generals, but you know, bases named after generals. I think monuments should never have been there, and I said that well before the movement came. But I don't think we changed the history. And I don't think we retract, I didn't feel we should retract the articles, but yet I get personally attacked from that. But more concerned to me is the professional attacks. And John and I and, and Justin and Joe, we've long been talking about abusive ABA. And I absolutely understand there is bad ABA out there. And we've written books, uh, articles about bad ABA and been quite outspoken. We've testified in court against bad ABA. And it's been our passion to get rid of that and, and get to quality ABA. But then we start getting posts like this, that ABA likened to coal mines. And, and there's been postings about labor law, child labor laws that are being violated because of ABA. And, and, and discussion about, you know, talking about the reputation, the history of ABA that just, again, isn't helping the field. And as Justin alluded to, is hurting families. And it greatly, greatly concerns me. There's the attacks where people are saying the foundation of ABA is abusive and how we have to get rid of all of ABA. And then more recently, there's discussions about, you know, Lovas and his original article and, and misinformation that, about building children and ruthless regard to self-stim. It's gotten to where, um, where we're, I, I've been called an ableist now. Um, which is again so foreign to so foreign to me that to be called this. Um, and you look at the definition of ableist, and and 
the discrimination against individuals with developmental disabilities. I am so much against the discrimination and my life has been working against that. And then there's been an expansion of the, de the definition where it goes to the fixing. And now what's, in the, what's being posted are things like, if we, are if we attempt to change behavior, we are ableists. And, and, and I don't know what the de where we start, where we work on this definition, how we talk about that. Because indeed, our job, as I see it, is to help quality of life. And that means changing behavior. And I think it's an important part of what we do. These are some of the things that, you know, ableists, they, they say what ableism looks like. And they added more recently that if we don't agree with the position, if someone has ASD and doesn't agree with their position, they're either masking um, their ASD or they don't have ASD. And they go that the assumption is that uh, to fix people. And these are what make ableists. And I guess we're guilty of the last one is that we try to fix people. But I don't think we fix people, by the way, because I think these are the definition of fix. I think we try to help people. And I think that's far different. And I think we need to take a stance that indeed there are things we're supposed to work on whether it's working on toileting, there's been an issue that the children shouldn't be toilet trained. That's that we're, we're thwarting their autonomy by toilet training them. And that, that, that we shouldn't do that. There's actually a posting talking about, should, but should we help them learn how to change their diaper when they're seven, eight years old? Really? And there's discussions about that. I'm not an ableist, I'm a psychologist. I'm a proud psychologist. As a psychologist, you know, our mission is to help people. The tenets of what we do is to be sense of the needs and desires of our, our clients. And unfortunately, a lot of ABA, ABA people haven't been sensitive to the needs of their clients. We have been, we were trained long ago to listen to our clients, whether they're adults or children or parents and, and take that into account. But it doesn't mean we always go about or go along with what they want. I can't tell you doing private practice work. There are people that want to commit suicide. And, and it's like, you don't necessarily go along with that. You try to change that perspective. Or there are, are people that are, that are depressed and don't want to change their behaviors. And you try to influence that. In autism, we work with, John and I work with adults that made decisions that weren't good decisions, but they didn't have informed consent. And they wanted to be lonely and, and didn't want friends. And we didn't abide by that. We listen to them carefully, but we challenge that because our job ultimately is to do what's in the best interest of our clients. And that's what we do as psychologists. When you look at self-stim, which has been a, a big debate recently, should we change self-stereotypes? My answer is, yeah, that's probably something we need to look at strongly for a few reasons. One argument being certainly that it interferes with the learning process. And there's been lots of research historically that has shown that that when people engage in stereotypes, they're not able to learn as effectively. But I also look at, at stereotypes as causing social, social isolation oftentimes. And if you look at the bullying research and kids in ele elementary through high school, it's their stereotypes that often result in that happening. And not that they should ever be bullied ever, but it's a behavior that causes problems. It, it impacts their life. And I think our job is, is to look at that. I, John sent me this re today and it's like, who do we, what are our sources? And unfortunately, I think our sources have become much more 
um, you know, People Magazine and, and, the, and those kind of rags, as opposed to the times that only pit, prints was fit to print. And we've got to stop, you know, following the people that have a voice, a loud voice, but don't necessarily speak for us all. This is, to me is really critical. And I'm obviously, I can probably tell I'm really passionate about this um, because I'm really concerned. I'm really concerned how it's affecting children's lives. I'm really concerned how it's affecting our, our field, our history. Thanks for indulging me. All right, so the, as we expected, there will be a string of questions and comments and possibly complaints uh, from this. So I'm gonna start off with some of these. I will give questions to, I, I will answer what I think I need to answer. And then Ron and John or Joe, you can uh, jump in. And unfortunately I can't go in order because I feel some of them we need to respond to based on your talk, Ron, but I think we're all okay answering every question today, that's fair. So uh, a question from an anonymous attendee was, wait, didn't the same podcast attack the whole other agency? My response is, this is misinformation and disinformation. No, a podcast, Rants with Justin and Joe, did not attack an entire agency. A guest on our show uh, came in and talked about his experience working in another agency. And that agency that he talked about, we really had no knowledge of it. The person sent us one email prior to um, when I was on a golf course. I think I was on the 14th hole and uh, really didn't pay attention after that. So no, I don't think the podcast attacked a whole other agency. I don't know if Joe, John, or Ron want to comment on that one. Okay, let's scroll down. Um, I, I guess the comment I want, want to make is I, I you know, I, I didn't listen to the podcast, but let's say you did attack another agency, which you didn't do, as you said, but let's say you did, that doesn't give you license to attack other people and go out and attack. Um, we can do better, we need to do better than that. And again, the personal attacks is very disturbing, but it's again, we've got to look at what we're doing, the, the social media, what it's doing to our field. Okay. Um, then we can go into uh, anonymous attendee. Hi, can we get to the topic? It's cool that we're hearing about another white man, but not why we're here. I think we're here to talk about uh, issues that are on social media. And this is what our guest Ron uh, felt was needed. So um, we're listening to him speak. Uh, I'll let this one go up because it uh, gets an ethical question. Do you really, anonymous attendee, do you really feel it's ethical to put screenshots out of Facebook users and their comments? That seems an awful like bullying to me, dot, dot, dot. Well, if it's on Facebook, it's, it's publicly accessible um, and people need to take responsibility for comments that they're making in public forums. Um, particularly when they're making comments that are intended to influence people. And um, we're just holding, holding people accountable for, for statements that they've made. 
Yeah, I agree. When you put something in a, in a public forum, it's it's public knowledge is accessible. But I think to to the point of of the or the topic of this talk, I think it's a lot about the content that they're espousing more. And I think that is more important than the person. And I know that my opinion might might differ, um, but I think it's what is being said in that public realm and what continues to be said and shared and, and whatnot. Um, because there's always going to be people that are going to share and say those things. Um, but I think it's how are we responding and how can we move forward and how can we address some of the things, especially when it contains misinformation or disinformation about the field. Ron, did you have anything for that? I, don't say something if you don't want to post it. Be comfortable with what you say, you know, be comfortable in your own skin. And if you think it, if you say it, then you're you know, it, it's going to be available for us to talk about. I also want to add, and I remember years before we were really getting into the social media thing, um, uh, that if it's there and you're in a private group, don't expect that information doesn't get out to other people. And the part of the problem is the information that's being put out, the ones that Ron shared and things that he did not share, parents are seeing that. Consumers are seeing that. They're not getting intervention because of what you're posting. So be careful about that. Here's one that's gonna get us more on topic and then we'll get back to what other people said. Anonymous attendee again. Is it possible parents are declining ABA services in lieu of other services and or the reputation we've built for ourselves based on our history of abuse and our refusal to acknowledge and retract the articles that may celebrate abuse in our field? Is it possible that behavior analysts are simply asking for the field to do better and be better as kinder, more gentler behavior analysts. I don't get where that's coming from. The, the expression celebration of abuse. Well, where it's coming from. What on earth are you talking about? Where it's coming from is there's certain people, and unfortunately now behavior analysts, or they call themselves behavior analysts, who thinks our whole field is abusive. That every procedure we do, because we work on stereotypic behavior, or because we're ableist as Ron referred to, or because we have a history of punishment or extinction or escape extinction procedures. They feel that our whole history is abuse. They feel that Ivar was abusive because he was trying to change kids with autism. I assume by that definition, Dom Bear was abusive. Uh, Sid Bijou was abusive because they tried to also change, you know, three-year-olds. Listen, doesn't I- every, Doesn't every parent try to, um, tr try to change their their young children. Um, we try to educate them. We try to teach them important values. We teach them how to communicate. And I'm just talking about parenting in general, right? But being a parent, being a teacher, being a clinician in a helping profession is all about helping people become more, achieve more of their potential of opening doors, of helping them understand the choices that they have. And I think it's really important to make a distinction here between young children, which is mainly what Ron and I are engaged in on a daily basis here, working with, with young children versus working with adults. We're not going to adults and saying, you need to change what you're doing. We're not devaluing choices that they make, all right? An adult, an adult has the right and the autonomy to make choices for themselves. And 
in my role as a clinician, all I would do is, first of all, I would only uh, speak up about their behavior if they came to me and asked me for assistance with something about that's going on in their life that they want to change, all right? But when it comes to children, children are not capable of making decisions for themselves, all right? It's, that's what parenting is all about. We know that we have to give them guidance. They will make all kinds of choices that would be detrimental to themselves. And there's a lot of important things that they need to learn to be able to become the person who can freely choose to be social or not be social. John, someone commented in, in the chat box and I would refer to please comment in the Q&A since there's so much, there's 43 questions right now. So it's hard to manage both the chat and the Q&A. Um, children, the question is children are not capable of making decisions? Question, question mark. Not capable at all. That's the definition of being a parent is to protect and to guide and to instill values because they're not capable of, it would, it, it, yeah, it would be just a disaster if we left it up to children. Um, my kids, my kids, I think they're pretty typical of, of all, you know, all kids out there. They never came to me and said, oh, please, dad, can we please brush our teeth before we go to bed? Right? They, they, it doesn't happen. And they need to do that in order to maintain their health and well-being. I, I do want to clarify something. We certainly take in the input of the children we work with. We take in their preferences. That's important to us. But ultimately, parents need to make the decision, and we as clinicians do. That's why it's called the parents of the holder of the privilege. Um, as a psychologist, they hold the privilege. And that means they're the decision maker. And the reason that term exists is because they are the decision maker. That doesn't mean we don't take in input from our children. We do when they, you know, it's important. I want to answer your question. It was a really good question, but there's parts I really love about the question. And I first want to say, we, you know, there's all kinds of ABA. It's not all the same. And we've written books on that and speeches and articles. We recognize there are, there's a, a tremendous continuum within ABA from progressive ABA to conventional ABA to abusive ABA. And we gotta stamp out abusive ABA. And again, we do lots of work to stamp that out in terms of litigation, et cetera. There's no place for it. And absolutely abusive ABA, I gotta tell you, conventional ABA turns parents off and, and professionals off. And that's what the, one of our passions is to try to infuse the field with progressive ABA that does listen to folks and is compassionate. That's a critical aspect. So I join in that we've got to do better. I join that we've got to stamp out abusive ABA. I want to go, another part is sort of the history of, of ABA. There are things that have been done in our history when before applied behavior analysis and behavior analysis, I'm uncomfortable with part of our history. I'm uncomfortable with Pavlov's work and experimental neurosis. It was important work. We learned a lot from it, but I'm uncomfortable with it. It could never be done today. I'm uncomfortable with Watson's work and Rainier's work and Mary Coverage Jones's work, inducing fear and phobias in young children. Skinner's work. Look at experiments more modern day, Milgram's work and the work of Zimbardo. 
all those people did things that we would never think of, would never think of doing today. But we need to learn from our past and do better. I get that, but I'm not willing to throw away the past. To call Lobos, you know, abusive, there's things he did that we don't agree with. But we also have to put in the time, the context. Did he use physical punishment? Yeah, he did an electric shock. He did that. It was a time where children were adolescents were in state hospitals and literally killing themselves their self-injury. And he used electric shock because that's what the subjects committee at state hospitals thought he should use because they could, they could monitor the voltage. Do we, do we, would we do that today? Of course we wouldn't. But I wouldn't, put, I wouldn't say it was abuse because he was saving the lives of children and learned from that and evolved from there and moved on. So, uh, you know, the fact that, again, he worked on, we reduced self-stimulation. I'm not, I'm not apologizing for that. I think it's an important thing we did. But to put him in the, in the realm and those people, if you're going to call Watson and Skinner abusive, I'm not comfortable with that. And I don't want to rewrite history. But we've got to learn from that. We've got to evolve from that. We've got to do better. I think it comes down to understanding just what is ABA, all right? Is, 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 it, is ABA responsible for certain things that happened in the name of ABA decades in the past? Does that define what ABA is, all right? Ron and I participated in the use of physical aversives with children. It was in the 1970s, um, and, and uh, it's not a secret that uh, part of the intervention, very, very sparingly used, uh, included uh, children being slapped. Now, that was not the, the primary part of what we did. It was 99% positively based. But if we judge ABA in... 2021 by the standards that were in effect in the 1970s, um, I, I don't think that that's fair to say. We have very clearly taken a stance against the use of physical aversives in intervention programs, and we have held that stance for more than four decades. And um, that doesn't mean that we should condemn the whole field of ABA because at a certain time in history, certain things were done. Are we going to discard the field of medicine because a hundred years ago, people did what we now understand to be completely crazy, horrible things to people, all right? ABA is a science and it progresses and we advance. And it, it's, to me, it's that the the power of the scientific method and the values that we adhere to as we go forward here, that's to me what defines ABA. I think that's a, a, a wonderful point. And I think the problem comes in when ABA is used as a hypernym to describe a wide variety of different things that are happening in a wide variety of different contexts. I think someone threw it in the chat box. I'm trying to give Justin some time to sort through things because there's so many questions and whatnot. Um, but that we, we need a definition, a unified definition of bad versus good ABA and abusive ABA, et cetera. Uh, and I think um, 
that's that's spot on. If ABA is going to continue to be used as this hypernym for behaviorally based intervention or intervention for individuals with autism or autistics, um, then we need to have some unified definition or some unified guidelines or parameters as to um, what it is or what it isn't. And that might help solve some of these problems that we're seeing about the misinformation that's being spread about, like you said, the science. And if we go back to Bear Wolf and Rosalie's definition, it's inherently compassionate. Applied behavior analysis is, is it, it's, if, if you're not doing something that's helpful for the client, it can't be considered ABA by definition with how they laid out the definition of ABA. So I'm, I'm just gonna say for, there's still people going in the chat and texting the panelists, if you make statements in the chat or questions in the chat, I can only 50-50% agree that you'll get your questions or statements recognized, not because they're not important, but because I have 61 to look for in the Q&A section. So please move everything from that chat to the Q&A uh, section. I'm gonna get just rid of some. Uh, quick can I add to Joe's, what Joe said for one second? I never one second, one minute. Wait, wait, no, you can't. Okay. Um, you can in a second. Someone just posted in the chat after I just asked them not, my questions in the QA aren't being answered either. Well, that's because there's 61 questions. We will get to all the questions, as I said, our guests have said that they will stay on as long as it takes. Uh, so we will get to the questions, but you're gonna have to be patient because there's four people talking about it. Go ahead, Ron. Um, I, you know, what's, how the field's handled is it because they distance themselves from ABA, they come up with new names. And that's created tremendous confusion for everyone and parents in particular. So that's how they distance themselves from ABA. And I don't think that's a good solution. So Joe, I agree, I think we need to have a better definition but let's not come up with all these different names um, because we don't like what good, bad ABA. So Joe, you can, I'll answer this one quickly just to get rid of some of these ones. Um, I think just this brief chat amongst four very privileged white men says a lot about the problems in our field. Um, it is true today, you have four men who have privilege. I would look at our other conferences and rants in our work to see that there's a pretty even balance of who we have on our uh, social media platform, this uh, podcast or conference, or within our published work. And somewhere below, someone says uh, um, something about, Joe, you can get rid of it, like listen to what they're saying and stop using that they're white males with privilege as an excuse. Um, so that was somewhere, uh, find it as I go on. So, um, this is a good question. What are effective ways to address misinformation on social media? Does discussing, arguing help or just make it worse? I think it's educating. I, I would like to try to frame it as educating. I, I tried in both my posts to be more educational um, in nature. I think it's standing up. I think unfortunately, I don't think people are standing up when they should need to, but I think it's just sharing your ideas and counter to it. And I think having healthy dialogues would be really nice. Um, that's certainly true politically, it'd be nice. It'd be true within our field. If we're gonna hold true to our roots, we have to regard that as an empirical question. And I personally don't know the answer. And I, I mean, Ron, to be fair, you're, you're stating a hypothesis about what you think will make a difference. Uh, look, I think this is, this is a, an area that's ripe for us to apply the science of applied behavior analysis to solving this real world problem. 
how do we change the way people behave in social uh, social media forums i don't go there i you know I, I i admire you guys i think you're a little bit crazy being out there fighting the good fight i can't i don't have the stomach for it uh, you know i i went go to go to some place that i think is safe and i start reading the comments i never get past the third comment before i think there they go again and that's it i'm out of here Okay, the next question, Joe, do you mind if I just ask the questions? Sure, go ahead. Um, since we have so many, it's not going to be our questions anymore. Um, anonymous, uh, early on, uh, how do you feel about the fact there are senior people in the field that seem more interested in being popular on social media than disseminating science? I, I don't know, is that a sincere question or is that a disguised dig? I have, it was someone anonymously posted the question and I said, I will ask them or address them. I'd rather it not be a popularity contest. I'd rather have people have a, a very good exchange of, of information. I, I think it should be, I wish it was research-based information. I think, again, this is a science. It doesn't matter who the individual is, who is disclosing their findings from their research if it's replicable right and and if if the methodology is sound then there's information it shouldn't be about who the person is now there may be people out there i'm sure there's people out there that are in in it for be, be becoming important right and and what they do and what they say is all about trying to enhance their importance um, but if we keep coming back to the basics of the science, the individual is unimportant. Yeah, and, and is unimportant. And if we look at it from a, like a behavior analytic lens, um, what social media does is it creates communities of reinforcement for you. And that community is going to continue to reinforce various things that you post or like or dislike or share. Um, and unfortunately, in the age of social media, that's created some communities that have caused harm in lots of different areas. I mean, we saw it all with the things leading up to the presidential election. Um, and when it was eliminated from one potential social media site, it moved over to another um, because essentially social media sites get to uh, operate as if they're publishers without any of the restrictions that are going on for publishers. Um, so it creates an opportunity for these people to create those communities that continue to perpetuate this type of behavior. All right. Uh, this one, I'm not naming names of people that do it. So. Um... How do you consider that autistics are only now finding their voice because of the medium social media provides us? Well, it's interesting that people talk about it that way, that autistics have found their voice. Who is the they? We're hearing from certain individuals who state that they're speaking on behalf of a whole population, right? nothing for us without us. But it's very presumptuous for any of us to presume to speak on the behalf of, other, of other people. Just as a comment is that for 15 years, John and I worked with adults with ASD and we listened to their voice all the time. They had a voice um, and it was an important voice. And certainly social media wasn't around there 
then, but their voice was important. But as John said, I, I think one of the problems is, is that, you know, the, the sense is I, I was on a panel with some adults with autism and they spoke what they felt and that was what they felt and that was fabulous. But I made the point that's their perspective. It's an important perspective, but there's other perspectives too. And a lot of adults that have had, tr had treatment, they just don't want to talk perhaps, but that doesn't mean they don't have their own perspective. And we've certainly gotten into, we had did a, a workshop recently with an adult with autism, talked about his perspective and people didn't like his perspective. And so they basically said he didn't have ASD because they didn't like his perspective or he was masking ASD. So it feels sometimes the only voice that's allowed to be spoken or heard are as if they back one position. And I think that's really dangerous. But I, I think anything that allows individuals to have a, their voice heard or their perspectives heard is, is, a, is a good thing. Um, and I don't think anyone is, is negating anyone's perspectives or, or they're sharing their, their lived experiences. Um, but I think one of the, the reasons why this has become a topic and a continued topic that's addressed in our field is there's more and more certified behavior analysts that are continuing to post things and share things that aren't necessarily accurate when you look at the research that is there to support it or not support it. Okay, the next question, I think it's another really good question. You mentioned the cyclical nature of criticisms of ABA. How are current criticisms different than those in the past? Do you, do you think the criticisms have gotten better or worse? I, the early criticisms were about bad ABA, abusive ABA, and I think those have maintained to still be criticisms today. It feels like it's become far more personal than before. And it feels like it's not looking at the field in, in, in its totality is more of an issue. And it, it feels like it's based on, on passion and not science. One of the things that we've seen in, in the past where it has ha helped restore some balance to the arguments going on within the field is often it comes back to the parents the parents who have, the, the, they're the most invested people to uh, speak up and seek out what is gonna help their children. So for example, when Catherine Maurice released her book, Let Me Hear Your Voice, that was a game changer because that was the voice of a parent speaking on behalf of her children and speaking to other parents and She's an amazing writer, and what she wrote was compelling. Um, and I remember back in those days, the 19, 19, what was it, 1990, early 1990s, and talking to parents, I remember one parent speaking and saying how, how completely disillusioned she was to find out that all this knowledge about a science that could have been helping her child was sitting on shelves in a library for two decades that she didn't know about until Catherine Maurice got the word out to parents and they made things happen. 
and they held other professionals accountable for becoming knowledgeable about what the science of behavior analysis had to offer to help children become more, more able. And does that make me an ableist to say that? I'm not apologizing for it if, if that's what you're calling ableism. So speaking of ableism, this question came up. What if a person doesn't want their behavior to change? What if ASD is their identity? I guess for, for me, and again, I, if we're talking about an adult versus a child, because that makes a difference, because the holder of the privilege, as I said. So let's, for, let's say it's an adult. I, I think it's my job as a psychologist is to try to have them make an informed decision. And it's that in their best interests. And talking to them about that, being sensitive to what their needs are and what helps them. I think that's what psychologists do. We listen carefully, but sometimes we try to influence in a different way. Because if we think their decision may be not in their best interest, in terms of them, whatever it is, if it's their identity as autism, that may be in their best interest. They may have a high quality of life, but it's possible they don't. So for me, it's a matter of listening and making working in collaboration and helping them make an informed decision to understand the, the ramifications, both good and bad, and come to some kind of agreement. That, that's what I think I've been trained to do, to be sensitive, empath empathic, compassionate, but sometimes not necessarily following what they want. I, John, I had this one client we worked with as an adult who came out of a state hospital and boy, deinstitutionalization was an interesting time. And he asserted he did not want to have friends, that he was alone or he liked being alone. And how dare us do anything to change that? And again, it was his decision, but we tried to have talks. We had talks with him, he had counseling and trying to let him see, we get your decision, but let's just talk about what that means. And eventually he made a different decision, which greatly improved his, his quality of life. And I think we need to understand that the, what the depression rate is in autism, the suicide rate in autism. And that has to also be a factor in our decisions. Well, and I think it's an interesting question from the get-go because if someone doesn't want their behavior change, I doubt that they would be seeking out a, a behavior analyst to, to change their behavior. Uh, and I would hope that um, if anyone is seeking out behavior analysis to help change their behavior, that that behavior analyst is working with them to help expand their options and expand their choices, like what John said earlier, to develop the repertoires to identify, do I want to be social in this situation or do I not want to be social in this situation and make an informed decision as to how they want to behave there. All right, next question. How do you suggest we include the feedback from the very people we serve in our practice so that we can actually learn from our history and develop programs with meaningful, meaningful in all caps, outcomes for the people we serve? We, we, we do try to do that um, and we need to get better at it. And it's important that we get reminders from time to time about making sure that we are listening and actively 
seeking um, the input of those who we serve and have served. Um, but that's a hallmark of, of ABA, social validity. And we, we've been advocating for that very strongly. All right, so now we're at an hour. What we're gonna do is Joe's gonna give the closing word. Joe? Your mic's off, Joe. Joe, your mic's off, so unless it's a... So that would be difficult for people to understand what the closing word there was, huh? <laughs> the, the closing word is competency. And I will throw that in the chat box for anyone. There you go.